The following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. We're Super Bowl Sunday. Now, I don't know if everybody said it, but Pastor Brian could not be here today, and I just wanted to clear up any confusion about that. Uh, you know, the reason he's not here has nothing to do with buying snacks at 7-Eleven for the Super Bowl party, or he's on a retreat with his daughter. How precious is that? And so that meant that he left Christy with four kids for the weekend. How, how precious is that? I mean, you know, so... So we're having a good time. But typically, on Super Bowl Sunday, church attendance will drop by up to 50%. So I'm sure when Brian invited me, he's sort of thinking, you know, uh, we may not have that many people there. How bad could Steve screw it up anyway? No? (laughs) But as you know, with everything going on in the world, security's gotten really tight at the airport. And uh, the police stopped this guy down at LAX the other day, and in the backseat of his car, he had all these machetes. And so they have the guy out of the car, and he's on the, the side of the road, and he's trying to explain to the officer that uh, he's a juggler, and he uses these machetes in his axe. So he says, let me prove it to you. So he's there on the side of the road, juggling these machetes, and this taxi driver comes driving through the airport and sees this guy juggling the machete. He says, I'm so glad I quit drinking. Look how difficult the sobriety test is now. (laughs) But let's say the Lord wakes you up tomorrow, and He asks you to go down to the airport, to the first-class counter of this really nice airline. He says, waiting for you there will be tickets for this around-the-world dream vacation. You're going to stop in all the these wonderful cities, stay in these beautiful hotels, eat all this lovely food, see all these sights, all expenses paid. The question is, if that were God's will for you, would you have difficulty saying yes to that? I know for me I wouldn't. I don't have difficulty saying yes when what God has for me is easy, when it's enjoyable, when it's pleasurable. And that is our subject today. We're talking about living out God's will. And it's, it's, it's something we don't hesitate to do when it's easy. But what if God's will is distasteful or difficult or even dangerous? What then? You know, we read Hebrews chapter 11 and they have this list of folks that have, have lived out the will of God. But we read there that some people were even sawed in two. I mean, this doesn't sound like fun. So what, so what happens when God's will is really difficult? And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Esther, and we'll talk about it in a minute, but we're going to see that Esther faced some great difficulty and danger in living out the will of God. Now, as you probably know, Pastor Brian began this series a few weeks ago, uh, which I'm going to kind of paraphrase as discovering and doing the will of God. He began by quoting Jeremiah 29.11, which the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you. God has great plans for you and me, much better than we could ever come up with on our own. And Pastor Brian also pointed out that God is preparing you and I to, uh, to, do these, to fulfill these great plans, to do these things 
that He has ordained for our life, and that uh, God prepares us for those things by giving us gifts and talents that enable us to do what He has given us to do. In other words, God doesn't just throw you in the ocean without teaching you how to swim. No, He's preparing you for the things that He has for you to do. Now, this week, we're going to look at the final piece of the puzzle in this series of discovering and doing God's will. And this final piece is how. How is it that we are to live out the will of God in our lives? Now, the answer to that question is simple, but it's not easy. Here's the answer. Uh, To do the will of God, we first must surrender to the will of God. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane going to the cross. Uh, He prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, do you want to follow me? In other words, do you want to do my will? Well, then crucify the desires of your flesh daily. That doesn't sound like fun either, does it? But if you want to live the best and highest and most fulfilling life possible, like Jesus, you or I, we must say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And that one decision puts you on the road to a fabulous life, the most fulfilling life possible. And don't miss this, it, that will be the life that you were created to live, the life that God has created for you. And when you get there, you're going to realize this is a perfect match with my gifts and talents. Now this morning, we're going to look at the life of Esther, as we said a minute ago, Uh, What we'll see in the life of Esther is that living out God's will can be both difficult and dangerous. It certainly was for her. So let's turn to the book of Esther, chapter 4. Psalms is roughly in the middle of your Bible. If you go one book to the left, you've got Job. One more book to the left, you've got Esther. Now, the events of the book of Esther take place somewhere between 465 to 485 B.C., and the, the, the action in this, uh, in this book, in this story, takes place in the city of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was this ginormous empire which covered most of the uh, known uh, earth, at that, most of the uh, earth at that time. And uh, the king that was uh, ruling the Persian Empire was a man named Uhazarus, also known as Xerxes. Now, what I want us to see as we walk through this story of Esther is that again and again, we're going to see the providence of God. We're going to see the hand of God. We're going to see God either orchestrating or using all events to accomplish His purposes. The will of God can be compared to an ocean liner moving across the sea. You could be a passenger aboard that ocean vessel, that that ship. You could be a pastor on that ship, and as a pastor of the ship, you have complete free will. You could do whatever you want aboard that ship. You could play shuffleboard or gain 15 pounds from the buffets or, you know, whatever it is. You could do whatever you want on on that ship, but the ship is still going from point A to point B, and God's will is like that. God's will is going to be accomplished whether you try to help it or whether you're indifferent and do nothing, or whether you try to oppose it, God's will is still going to be accomplished. And then you might say, well, you know, why should I bother? If God's will is going to happen anyway, why should I bother to get involved? And why should I, why should I want to help facilitate God's will? And here's why. 
we, I think most of us know this, but to receive forgiveness of sin and blessings in this life and the promise of heaven, we must surrender to God. And when we surrender to God, we become His. He becomes our master and we become His servant. And the purpose of our life from that moment forward is simply to serve Him, to do His will. You know, and so it's, it's not optional to say, well, I, I want to do this, I won't do that. I, we don't get that choice. It's not a menu where you get to pick. You know, God will ordain certain things for our lives, and then we are expected to do those things. And so here's a saying I like. He's either Lord of all, He's Lord of everything in our life, or He's not Lord at all, right? And it's, it's kind of scary to contemplate that, but He's either Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. So... What we're going to see unfold in the book of Esther, kind of the, the drama here, is that there's going, or as we're going to see, there's going to be this plot to annihilate the Jews, to wipe out every Jew on the planet. It's believed there were 15 million Jews on the earth at this point in time. So if this plot had succeeded, it would have been worse than the Holocaust. But not only that, something else to consider. God said that his Messiah, his son, would come through the Jewish line. He'd be a son of David and a son of Abraham. And so if the Jews are wiped out, how could Messiah come? How could Jesus come? How could it be a sacrifice for sin? So, I mean, what we see here is that God has everything at stake, right? He loves the Jews. They're the apple of his eye, his special treasure, the Scripture says. And he loves everyone else and wants them saved. He's not willing that any should perish. And so God's whole plan is at stake here. And we're going to see God move. We're going to see God use circumstances and move in these circumstances to accomplish His will, yet without violating the free will of His people. Book of Esther opens with what's probably the biggest party. I have to narrate this because this book's a long book. We're not going to read the whole book. I'm going to narrate some of it, and then we're going to focus on chapter 4. But, uh, you know, this book opens with probably the biggest party the world has ever seen. These folks are partying like it was 1999, or maybe more like 499 BC, which it was more or less. But this over-the-top, outlandish, opulent party goes on for six months. The king has said to his wine stewards, uh, don't limit the wine. Make sure everybody has just as much as they want to drink. I can see that's a recipe for trouble right there, but As the party progresses, it gets more and more elaborate and opulent and over the top until it kind of reaches this high point. At that point, and the scripture says, when King Uhazarus was feeling the effects of his wine, when he was buzzed, he decides that he wants his queen brought to the party, Queen Vashti, so that everybody can see her beauty. So he sends the eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti so all the guests can see how beautiful his queen is. But she refuses to come. Now, why was that? It could be that in the Persian tradition of this time, a woman would not appear in public without her veil. Be kind of like, you know, there's a state dinner at the White House and the First Lady shows up wearing a bathing suit or something. It just wouldn't be appropriate, right? And so it wouldn't be appropriate for a woman to be seen in public without her veil. That could be the reason. But whatever the reason, the scripture says that when the king heard that Queen Vashti refused to come, He became furious, and his anger burned within him. Ever feel that way? You know, uh, you and I, we need to understand the physiology of anger. There is a physiology. When we become angry, 
the adrenaline is dumped into the bloodstream, and it will remain at high levels for hours. And so once we, you probably all know this, but once you become angry, it's easy to become a lot more angry. And then you may do or say things that you, you shouldn't. I wish I could say I don't know anything about this personally. I do. Um, but, but, you know, my counsel would be if you find yourself getting angry, you might want to disengage from the situation, remove yourself from the situation. Um, you know, the thing that I would recommend and I try to do is grab my Bible and go lock myself in the nearest bathroom until the anger subsides, right? Because if I, if I stay engaged in the situation, I, you know, I might do or say something that I will greatly regret later, you know? And, and we, you know, something was said earlier about the tongue when we we're praying, but James talks about just the danger of letting loose with our tongue, right? We, we can probably all remember things that we've done. It's very dangerous, especially when you're angry. So that's, that's a suggestion. Back to our story. King is furious. He consults his advisors. He basically says, you know, hey, the queen's dissing me. What what are we going to do about that? The advisors say, well, king, this isn't just a problem for you. Once people learn that the queen gets away disobeying the king, we're going to have a problem with our wives. They're not going to obey us either. And, you know, man, this would be really a bad time to elbow the little woman. So please, just we'll just leave that where it is. But so the king and his advisors, they decide to banish Queen Vashti. She'll never see the king again. And they decide to hold a contest, kind of a beauty pageant, to decide who's going to be the next queen. Now, this might seem like a strange turn of events, but what we have to keep in mind is God is using all of these things to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is to protect his people, the Jews, from being slaughtered. So a search begins in this enormous kingdom that stretches across most of the known world to find the most beautiful woman. And uh, some ladies volunteer, you know, but Esther doesn't. She's taken by force to the palace to make to be part of this beauty contest. It makes the point that there's times when you and I will volunteer to do something for God. There's times God volunteers us, right? We just show up and suddenly God's got this thing for us. So that's what happens to Esther. Uh, out of all these beautiful gals, she's chosen to be queen. The king falls in love with her. Scripture says that she had a beautiful finger, figure, finger too. I don't know, maybe, but <laughs> she, she had a beautiful figure and she was extremely good looking. Now that's exactly how I felt the day that I met my bride-to-be. It was love at first sight. At least it was for her. <laughs> Might be watching the Super Bowl from the garage later. I don't, we'll see. Um, now Esther is an orphan. Her parents have died, and her uncle Mordecai has raised her. Now, both Esther and Mordecai are Jews, and uh, Mordecai has instructed Esther not to tell anyone that she's a Jew, and she's she's followed that admonition. Now, there's one more main character, and then we'll get into uh, what's going on here. But the, the other main character is a man named Haman. He is, in effect, the prime minister of the uh, Persian Empire. He's uh, the guy that runs things for the king. Uh, Haman is filled with pride. Haman has an ego bigger than Donald Trump's, if that's possible. And, uh, and so this guy, Haman, convinces the king to issue an edict where everyone in the kingdom, if they see Haman coming, they drop to their knees before, you know, as Haman passes, right? He's just got this pride thing. And everyone in the kingdom of Persia bows before him except Mordecai. Mordecai won't do it. And this makes Haman livid. Now, Haman knows that Mordecai is a Jew. So he comes up with this plot 
that he doesn't want to just kill Mordecai, he wants to wipe out all the Jews. And by the way, anti-Semitism, racism, is always authored by Satan. And there may be people fulfilling it, but Satan is always behind it, which he definitely is here, because uh, he hates people, because they're made in the image of God, and he hates God. So anyway, uh, Haman comes up with this evil plot to wipe out the Jews, and then he goes to the king with his plan. And here's basically... Uh, kind of a paraphrase of how he puts it, but he goes to the king and he says, King, there's one ethnic group in your kingdom and they're dangerous people. He doesn't say what that means, but he just says, hey, these these people, we got to watch out for them. And I, king, will pay into your treasury 375 tons of silver, just for the privilege of annihilating them. Now, that's $198 million in today's money. So the king foolishly does not ask who these people are. He simply hands his signet ring to Haman. He says, write the law, dip the wax, you know, put the ring in the wax to authenticate it, and then you send it throughout the whole empire. This will be a law. So Haman writes a law which allows citizens of the empire to wipe out entire families of Jews and then seize their property and seize their money. Now Mordecai hears about this, as do all the Jews throughout the empire, and they all mourn before God. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, the news of this edict to slaughter the Jews. And the queen was overcome with fear. You know, Esther wasn't some super saint. She was just like you and me. So, She's got fear and worry just like we do. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so he could take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. He he says, I'm not going to stop mourning. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. She wanted to know more about what's going on. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city gate in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard who has not been summoned, in other words, don't show up without being invited, the death penalty. Only if the king extends, extends the gold scepter will that person live. And really what Esther's saying is, look, everybody knows what's going to happen here. And what we need to, you know, we, we live in a land of relative justice, not perfect, but it's much better than a lot of places. And so we have an idea of trials and investigations. There's no trial here. There's no investigation. You show up without being invited to come before the king, and they just kill you on the spot, right? So that's what Esther's saying. It's an automatic uh, punishment uh, if you fail to be invited. And, and then, of course, If the king extends the golden scepter, well, then then no problem. So Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. 
If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Now listen to this verse here. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What does that mean? You've come to your royal position for such a time as this. What it means is that God has strategically placed you. And and you, because of his placement, you have access and influence with certain people that others won't have. You, you have been gifted to, to have that. Now, some years ago, Carrie and I were out on a date night. It's not like we do that every few years, but this is just the one night we did it. And uh, we may not be doing it again after. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how it's going to go after, you know. But uh, anyway, so we were out on this date night, and we just finished dinner. And we're leaving the restaurant, and my phone rings. It was a guy I'd, I'd met maybe a couple of times, and he says to me, he says, uh, my, I just came back from the doctor, my wife and I, and he said, my wife's pregnant. The doctor's telling us that uh, our son has a very, very serious heart defect. And if he survives the delivery, which is greatly doubtful, but if he survives the delivery, at best, he'll be a vegetable. His quality of life will be zero. So because of that, we've decided to abort our baby. But I know you're a Christian, so I thought I'd see what you have to say. And notice this. He said, I didn't know who else to call. You know, the point is there's someone in your life who that person doesn't know any other Christian or does not have a close relationship with any other Christian other than you. And so you uniquely have the opportunity to speak God's counsel into that life. And if you don't, no one else will. Now, the Scripture says that Jesus is full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. So when we get these opportunities to minister, we also want to be full of grace and truth, full of grace, compassion, understanding, sympathy, patience, but at the same time, not failing to declare the full counsel of God. What does God's Word have to say about the situation that this person is bringing you? You, you don't want to be all grace. You've got to give them the truth, too. You don't really help them by just going, too bad, and I'm sorry. And, you know, if it's an issue that God wants to speak into, we're supposed to do both. So this man and I talked for a while. At the end of the call, he says, well, I now realize that it's not God's will that we have an abortion, and, and so we're going to have this baby. And they did have the baby. The baby did require a heart surgery. Other than that, most normal, healthy, strong baby boy you ever saw. Now, there's a P.S. to this story. A couple years after that conversation, this man bowed the knee to Christ and was baptized. Now, here's the point. God has placed you strategically Christian. Maybe you'll be used to save a life. Maybe you'll be used to save someone for eternity. But there are no accidents in God's kingdom. Where you live is not an accident. Where you're working is not an accident. The friends that you have, all of these were ordained by God. Why? Because he wants to use you to do his will. You might want to speak into that life. So you've been placed by God in these places for one reason, that you can help accomplish the will of God. I mean, there's people just perishing every day because they don't know Jesus. And we do. And so we have these relationships. We want to be using them for the glory of God, for his purposes. 
Now, Esther says something very uh, wise uh, in, in this next verse. I'm going I'm to read you that. So, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. So what's she saying? We're going to prepare the way in prayer. Now the scripture says that God holds the heart of the king in his hand and like rivers of water, he turns it whichever way he wants. And I've noticed again and again in prayer that God changes people's attitudes Right? Maybe there's somebody you need favor with. Maybe it's your boss or your customer or uh, at school or wherever it would be. You need favor with somebody. Government, right? God can give you favor. You might not have it today, but through prayer, God can do that. God can change attitudes. You've got a, somebody in your life that's kind of a problem person. They're always kind of giving you some problem. God can change that. So prayer is, is essential if we want to see some hearts around us change. So she says, all right, first we're going to do that. It says, after this prayer, this three days of prayer and fasting, after that, I will go to the king even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish, Esther said. Esther realizes that some things are more important than life itself. Some things are worth dying for. Some things are worth giving your life to accomplish. In 1975, a Christian made his way to O'Hare Airport in Chicago. His intention was to share the gospel with travelers there who were waiting for planes. Now, you've got to go back in time. Some of you are too young to know this, but uh, in those days, there was no TSA, uh, no body scans. <laughs> we won't talk about that. I would hate to be the guy in the back room. But anyway, um, there was none of that stuff going on. You just would walk into the airport and go back to the gate. I know this is like a strange concept today, but that's the way it was. So that's what he did. He went to the gates, and he's going around and telling people about Jesus. And most people are indifferent. A few are hostile. But one man, a man with a wicked past, actually said, yes, I, I, I want Jesus. I, I, I want this gospel, right? And was it easy for this guy? No, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of rejection and got discouraging. Was it worth it? Well, it was to me, I was a guy that heard the gospel that I'd never heard the gospel before. And I'd like to say that I immediately began to walk with God. I would consider this more of a seed that was planted, and there was some watering, and later there was fruit. But the point is, that was the first time I heard the gospel. And that guy went to some sacrifice and trouble to share the gospel, not knowing what would happen. And he undoubtedly incurred, you know, incurred some difficult uh, situations. In the year 2000, a woman from Kenya, a Kenyan woman named Mary Chamba, came upon 22 children living in the streets of Nairobi. They were starving. Some of them urgently needed medical care. Now, what she could have done is say, you know what? I'm going to pray for you guys. Be warm and fill. Be you know, it could have been that. Or it could have been, you know, I need to call somebody in the government, and you know, they need to take care of this. And I'm not saying those are wrong responses every time, but in this case... She was convinced these kids would not survive unless she personally intervened. So she took these 22 kids into her own home. She had a tiny home with five of her own kids and a husband, brought them into her own home. Husband didn't like it. He said, either they go or I go. But he didn't wait for her answer. He poured kerosene on her and attempted to set her on fire. She escaped the house, 
When she returned, he was gone, and she's been living without a husband for 15 years. But she now ministers to 150 orphan children, most of them rescued from either wicked or dangerous situations, and now most of them know Christ. Was it easy? Was it worth it? One more. In 1956, missionary Jim Elliott went to the jungles in Ecuador, intending to share Christ with a tribe that he knew had never been reached with the gospel. He and four companions go into the jungle, and within a few days, all five of them are murdered by the tribesmen. They never got a chance to share the gospel with anyone. Elliot left a young wife and a nine-month-old daughter. His wife, some of you know the story, he, uh, his wife later returned to the same jungles, finds the chief, shares the gospel with the chief, the chief comes to Christ, the whole tribe comes to Christ. Was it easy? There's quite a cost to it. Was it worth it? Jim Elliott, prior to his death, wrote this in his journal, He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Some things are worth losing your life for. Some things are worth spending your life doing. Back to our story. Esther is now prepared to give her life if needed in an attempt to rescue her people. So she approaches the king. He extends the golden scepter. So she dodges the bullet, so to speak. And, but she doesn't bring her request to the king right away. Why? Well, the court's filled with dozens of people. Some of them might try to sway the king some other way. So she uh, doesn't bring the request. She simply invites the king and Haman to come join her in her room at the palace for dinner. Not in the formal dining room where there's a lot of it. No, this is going to be private. She wants to be able to share this privately with the king. So she invites them to dinner, and they come to dinner, and the king says, Esther, darling, I'm paraphrasing, but anything you want, baby, just tell me what it is. Now, I've never had the courage to say that to my wife. I have no idea what she might ask, you know. Garage, Super Bowl. Um, but, but Esther doesn't tell him what she wants. She says, no, come back tomorrow night to another dinner. Why? She might have been afraid. But regardless, God is going to use this 24 hours to, uh, to work in the circumstances to prepare things so that his will is going to be done. For example, the king couldn't sleep that night. And in a minute, you're going to see that was the hand of God. He couldn't sleep that night. So, and now, now, this king had no satellite dish, but he had plenty of entertainment options. He could have invited the palace singers or the magicians or the concubines. He didn't do any of that. He has his servant bring him the record, the daily record of what takes place in the court, right? All the little things that happen at the throne for the king. And, and uh, so out of these dozens of volumes, it must have been, the, this servant selects this one volume from years earlier and happens to open to this particular page that talks about how Mordecai, Esther's uncle, uncovered this plot to kill the king, tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the king's life is saved. King says to the servant, did I ever do anything to honor Mordecai? And the servant says, no. So meanwhile, Haman is getting more and more upset that Mordecai will not bow to him. And he builds this gallows, 75-foot high gallows, intending to hang Mordecai on the gallows because the guy won't bow to him. And he goes to the king early that morning intending to ask permission of the king to hang Haman on the gallows. Not Haman, uh, Mordecai. 
But before he can say anything, the king says, you know, I want to honor Mordecai. Put my robe on him, put him on my horse. And you, Haman, I want you to lead him all around the city and have everybody honor him. Of course, Haman hates this, but he does it. So then Haman and the king come to the dinner, the second dinner that uh, Esther has prepared. Lots happened in that 24 hours. The king again asks the queen what he wants and again promises to do anything that she asks. She asks the king to save her life and the lives of her people. She says that there's an evil man who's come up with an evil scheme to kill all these people. And the king asks, who is that? She says, Haman. The king flies into a rage. He has Haman hung on the gallows that Haman himself has constructed. The king passes a law which neutralizes the first law uh, that, that uh, protects the Jews. And then the king appoints Mordecai as his prime minister. And then catch this, the king gives Esther the $198 million in silver that Haman had. She then bought a jet and became the, the star of her own reality show. No, except for the jet and the reality show, that's exactly what happened. But do you see how God worked in this wacky situation to use every event and all the actions of these people to accomplish His will without violating the free will of the people? Miraculous. But four lessons we see from Esther's story. Number one, God has a will for your life. He has something He wants you to do. Number two, God will prepare you and position you for that thing that he has for you to do. Number three, in doing God's will, you will face difficult, perhaps even dangerous situations. But you will most certainly have to make some difficult choices. Finally, number four, you can only do God's will by surrendering to God's will. And like Esther... You will not know in the beginning how it's going to turn out. It's going to seem pretty scary at the time, as it did for her, I'm sure. Now let's talk about our comfort zone, our comfort zone. I think all of us pretty much know how this works. You can kind of imagine a circle. And in the circle are things that are easy for us, pleasant for us. We're good at those things. Those things are fun or pleasurable. That's the comfort zone. Outside of the comfort zone are things that are not comfortable for us. We don't know how to do them. We've never tried them. They're difficult. We might see them as dangerous or risky. When we were ministering at the church in Calabasas, we got the idea that we wanted to serve the homeless. And so Sunday afternoon, some of us went to a shelter, and our job was going to be serving food. And I'm ashamed to tell you this, but I think you need to know it. I think it illustrates the comfort zone is my idea, it's not, not proud of it, but my idea at the time was, okay, uh, I'll be on this side of the counter, you'll be on that side of the counter, give me your plate, let's get this thing done. That was sad to say, but that was my heart. But then I noticed one of the men from our group was sitting at the table with the people and ministering. I thought, well, that's how Jesus would be doing this, you know? So I went and sat at the table, and this was the beginning for me of a ministry of the homeless. And pretty soon we were helping put on a service at the shelter on Friday nights and doing worship and teaching the Bible and all that. And, uh, and then a little while later, a man called me Saturday morning and says, hey, can I take my car to the shelter, bring some people to church on Sunday? I said, great, you know. And then pretty soon we had a little bus taking people, and, and then it began to be a lot of people from the shelter at the church. And a lot of the people from the church didn't like that. It was out of their comfort zone. 
Now, nobody said anything, but they just began to leave. And, and I would suggest to you that this kind of ministry, it's probably not a, a recipe for church growth, but it might be a recipe for kingdom growth. Dozens of people, precious people, came to know Jesus and, and were baptized. So. But, but here's the point. That first day serving the food, I was way out of the comfort zone. This just was not, I just didn't, it was something new, right? Uh, and that's how it works. You venture outside the comfort zone, you do something a few times, suddenly it's part of the comfort zone, right? Now that you do that, you, you weren't born knowing anything, right? If you could drive a car or walk or skateboard or whatever, you weren't born knowing that, right? It became part of the comfort zone as you ventured out and tried some things. Now let's take this comfort zone, let's put another name on it. Let's call it the flesh zone, because things inside the comfort zone pretty much please my flesh. And let's call the area outside of the comfort zone, let's call that the spirit zone. And I would suggest to you that that's where God is operating, outside of the comfort zone, right? And so doing the will of God, it's going to, it's going to be a little scary, it's going to feel a little weird. Because this is where God's at work, and this is where God will challenge you uh, to do things for him outside of the comfort zone. At this point, you're probably thinking, you know, gee, I wish I'd just stayed home, watched the pregame show. This hasn't been much fun so far. Uh, but, but I want to challenge us this morning to live out God's will in three areas. Here's the first one. Morality. Let's say you're single. And uh, you know, perhaps, that God desires that you live a life of purity. But perhaps, you know, you would say, I, I realize I haven't been. And maybe you've thought about it. Well, I, I, yeah, I could kind of would like that, but if I did that, I might lose my boyfriend or girlfriend. And, and here's something, I, if that's you, I would just something I'd suggest to you. If that person really loves you, they'll honor your desire for purity. But if they won't honor that desire, what does that really say? Since they don't really love you, they just love themselves, right? And here, all the sin issues aside, would you want to be spending years with someone that really doesn't love you? Does this make sense, right? Okay, so that's the first one. Second, I want to challenge us in the area of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Who has hurt us? Who has hurt you? Who's caused you great pain? Have you told them that you forgo? Have you asked them to forgive you? I mean, chances are you did something, right? I, I, I know me. There's probably no human interaction where I don't have some guilt for what I did. And so if you haven't done that, the question is, why not? Do you love your comfort zone, your fleshly ways so much you won't step out to do what God commands us to do? You know, the Scripture says God doesn't even want us at His altar if we got something against a brother or sister. I mean, if you think about it, this is a kingdom of forgiveness. If it wasn't, Jesus never would have gone to the cross. The whole thing is about forgiveness, right? And so that's why Jesus is so emphatic that we practice it. Whether you're in the church or out of the church, it doesn't matter. You know, God is really into that reconciliation. Right? Whatever might have happened. And because of that, I'm going to give you a little bit of a weird assignment. And, and I believe Pastor Brian will be on the page with this. But, I mean, normally we say, 
Don't get your cell phone out in church, turn it off, bury it in the sand. You know, that's normally what we say. But today I'm going to say that when we finish the message and the worship team comes up, get your phone out. I mean, here's how you know if this is you. Is there a face? Do you see a face when we talk about this? That's the Holy Spirit going, this person. Now, here's, here's where we trip up in this area of forgiveness. We think we've got to argue the issues. We think we've got to go back into what happened. No, you're just delivering a message, right? Here's how it works. You call them up, you go, you know what? I want to ask you to forgive me everything I ever did. And I want to let you know I forgive you everything you've done. That's it. You can say goodbye at that point. You're not there to try to argue them into any mindset or show them your point of view or, pardon me, you're not there to do any of that. You're just delivering a message, a very simple message. So I, I, would, I would say do that before you leave here today because if you don't, you won't. And, and if they're not there, just leave, a me- leave that message on their phone. God will bless you. You'll have, you'll have a refreshing in your relationship with the Lord. Because as long as you, I mean, you know how this works. The scripture says, if we refuse to forgive, he puts our forgiveness on hold, right? So we're kind of standing at a distance from God suddenly. We don't want that. And God doesn't want that between his kids either. So if that's you today, now, before you leave. Third, I want to challenge us in the area of witness. Jesus gave us a commission, a commandment to tell people about him, right? Uh, help people come to know him, the great forgiver. He's just waiting to forgive people, right? He's not going, oh, that's sin. I don't know. No, every sin, any sin, all sin, past, present, future sin, he wants to forgive it all. He wants you to come into relationship. He wants to, you know, this is, this is all of us. This is what he wants. This is him, right? Now, so here's the question. If this is such good news, and it is, why are we so afraid to share it? I could see we might want want to tell somebody, you know, your breath, I've got this issue. No. This is good news. So why 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 are we hesitant to share that? About 10 years ago, I did a funeral for a woman, 82-year-old woman who'd lived in the valley. And I asked the family at, at the end of this funeral service, could I give an invitation to receive Christ? And they said, fine. And uh, as I normally do with these things, I, I was greeting the people as they're coming into the service. And uh, this one person came in, and, um, and uh, I, I wasn't sure if it was a man or a woman. The, the clothing seemed to be kind of a woman's. The face was kind of a man's. I couldn't tell. But then I noticed this pencil-thin blonde mustache. It was a man. Now, just let me know that no one would misconstrue why I'm going here. Jesus loves transvestites. He loves transgender people. He loves gay people. He loves all people. He wants to draw them to himself, minister his gospel to them. Let them know that he shed his blood for them. He loves them. So I'm not talking about this to point out any particular... No, I mean, Jesus' attitude... You know, We tend to categorize sin. I don't believe Jesus does. I think it's all sin in his book. He isn't really too concerned about what it is. So anyway... So uh, this is what happened at the beginning. And so then we did the service. And, and then in the end, I'm kind of getting cold feet about, you know, should I do an invitation or not? And, you know, like maybe there's nobody here that wants Jesus today. And then, 
And then I'm thinking, you know, you know, it's just kind of a grieving time. You know, maybe I shouldn't be. And then in the end, I just thought, well, I, I should. I, I'll give an invitation. Anyway, so people responded, uh, two or three, I think. And one of them was this, this guy. And then after everybody left, the family's just sharing with me. And they happened to mention this man. They said, you know, he was so close, apparently so close with this deceased woman. She, he was a hairdresser. She'd gone to him for 30 years. They're very, very close. And they shared that uh, when this woman passed away, oh, it just gripped him. He would just sit in his chair at the salon and just weep. I mean, uh, God was preparing him. I mean, there was just something going on in him that this passing of this woman just really got hold of him. And they also mentioned, I don't know why they did, but they mentioned that this man was involved in a homosexual relationship. Anyway, Three weeks later, this man dropped dead of a massive heart attack. And so the point being, if I'd stayed in the comfort zone and not offered Christ, what what would have happened to this guy? And you, Christian, if you stay in the comfort zone, what, what baby might be aborted? What person might go off to an eternity of torment instead of an eternity of blessing? And so I would I would counsel you, please do this. Tell the Lord, Lord, I'm going to do whatever you ask me. Whatever it is, do that. Now, if you're here today and you've never bowed the knee to Christ, we're just going to do a quick explanation of the gospel. And that's simply that Jesus loves you. He made you. And you're either his friend or his enemy. Scripture says. You know, before I was a believer, I kind of thought, no, I'm somewhere in the middle. You know, Democrat, independent, you know, I'm kind of... Anyway, uh, no, that's not the way it is the kingdom of God. There's two... There's two groups, friend, enemy. A friend is someone who has surrendered to him. You're his friend. If you haven't, you're his enemy. That's it. Friends go off to heaven, the enemies. Because God is just, they must be punished for sin. That is not God's heart. He does not want any to perish, the Scripture says. So if that's, if that's you, if you're not sure, be sure. It's a very simple thing to just tell Jesus, Forgive me my sin. Come in to my heart and life. Be my God. I want to follow you. That's it. It's just that, the words aren't important, but that idea that I recognize I'm a sinner, I ask you to forgive me, I ask you to come in, invite him in. He won't come in unless you ask. You invite him in, and you let him know you're going to follow him. He's going to be your God. So we're going to pray, and if you haven't done that before, I'd invite you to do that while we're praying. Here. Worship team can come. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you. That you're good. We thank you for your word. Your word's living and powerful. And your scripture says that your word will always accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We're trusting that even now you're doing that in our hearts. Maybe something about the word that we've just studied that spoke to us. And that wasn't just us. That was your spirit uh, applying that word to our heart and life. And so, Lord, we just ask you to continue to do that work in us, whatever that is. And if it's an area of morality, God, just give us the courage to stand for you and to do what you have ordained. If it's forgiveness, give us the courage to make the call, God, and we'll be set free. And uh, if the issue is that we're reluctant to share you, just, just help us in that. Empower us in that. Enable us in that. And we give you all the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. We pray that this message has blessed you. To hear more messages 
or to support future podcasts, please visit us at valleymetrochurch.com.